Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 82 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. On today's show, I talk with Dr. Carmen McLean from the National Center for PTSD about her work in researching the effectiveness of prolonged exposure therapy and how both veterans and providers can better prepare themselves for the treatment. For those you know that don't benefit, I think it's incumbent upon providers to make sure that the patient understands that they're not a lost case, um, which I think is sort of the default conclusion that a lot of patients would have, but you know, there are other treatments. And because this one didn't work with that therapist, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person can't recover quite a bit potentially from um, an alternate intervention. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timey podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, again, uh, you know that we have a bunch of different guests, some veterans who are focusing on mental health, uh, and then some clinicians and trying to help veterans understand that, uh, you know, we're just, we're people too, we're regular, uh, you can approach us. Uh, I'm really excited about our guest today uh, because she has a very, very long um, research history into a particular type of modality uh, that helps with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, prolonged exposure. Uh, Long-time listeners will know that back in episode 61, we had a conversation with the Strong Star Training Initiative with Brooke Fina, uh, and uh, we covered a little bit on uh, prolonged exposure there. Uh, but this is one of the, uh, the, the most evidence-based practices that will actually help a veteran overcome post-traumatic stress disorder. So before we get into that, I would like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Carmen McLean. Carmen, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, absolutely. I know that uh, you and I just recently connected 
Um, but, uh, and I, as I'd mentioned when we, we talked last week, uh, I'd, I'd known about your work for a while. Um, a lot of research in the area of post-traumatic stress disorder and prolonged exposure. Uh, but again, before we get into that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and sort of where you got to where you're at now. Sure. So I, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. I um, actually grew up in Vancouver, Canada, and I moved to the U.S. to um, pursue my graduate um, studies in psychology. And I was um, always interested in anxiety-related disorders. But it actually wasn't until um, I did my postdoctoral training at the National Center for PTSD um, at the Boston VA that I, I mean, that was really my first sort of foray into the world of veteran mental health and into, and, 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 and to, um, focusing on PTSD specifically. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. I found working with veterans to be very rewarding, very compelling, um, from there, I went on to continue to focus on PTSD. I worked at the University of Pennsylvania with Dr. Edna Foa, who is the developer of prolonged exposure therapy, um, and had a wonderful experience, um, you know, working with her um, and, and, you know, with her mentorship, doing a lot of really interesting uh, treatment outcome work. And then more recently, I have um, moved to the West Coast again, and I'm at the National Center for PTSD. There's a dissemination and training division um, at the Palo Alto VA, and the focus here is there's a lot of uh, really fantastic work happening in, in the world of mobile technology and dissemination implementation research. And currently, my um, my my interests are are really moving um, towards questions about how do we get these treatments that work? How do we actually get them out to people that might benefit from them? So that's that's what I'm really interested in. No, oh, that's great. It's uh, it's interesting to me when I hear uh, clinicians who um, maybe had had minimal experience with the military. Uh, start working with veterans uh, in a mental health capacity. Uh, how was that for you when you first started with the uh, with veterans at the Boston VA? Well, you know, I, I I'll, I'll just be honest. I actually felt a little bit like a fish out of water because I am somebody who d- does not have, um, you know, I don't have anyone in my family that was in the military. I had not really particularly been exposed to that culture before. And so there was a pretty steep um, learning curve for me when I first uh, went to the VA. Um, but, um, but as I said, I found it, I found it to be really, really interesting and very rewarding and really liked uh, the, the, the clinical interactions that I, I, I had there with my patients. Your work on, uh, on, right now on the research. Um, maybe if you could give us a little bit of, of a background on some of the research that you've done regarding uh, prolonged exposure and the treatment of PTSD. Sure. So as I said, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, a lot of the stuff that um, I was doing in collaboration with Dr. Foa was more treatment outcomes. So really looking at 
Um, for whom does this treatment work? What are some of the important sort of parameters that go around that? Um, we um, did the, the, the first ever randomized control trial of prolonged exposure therapy with an active duty military uh, population that was recently completed and published in JAMA. Um, earlier this year. And so that was the first study um, that, you know, was actually looking at, can you do this treatment that we know has, as you said in your intro, it has the most um, evidence supporting its efficacy. It's been studied with a lot of different um, types of, of trauma survivors, um, including, you know, different traumatized within civilians and veteran uh, populations as well. But this was the first study to look at the efficacy of the treatment with active duty military population. And that was a study that was um, done with, um, with, with soldiers in Fort Hood. Um, and that study actually looked at a, had an interesting um, research question beyond just, you know, how well does the treatment work with this group? But we were also interested in looking at whether the treatment could be condensed and delivered um, in a daily format so that the whole course of the treatment is, is completed within two weeks. And that is an important question um, you know, there's a lot of practical implications to that because, you know, the sort of standard treatment mod model for not just PE, but like actually for all therapy, like everywhere is, you know, one hour sessions once a week. Um, and that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of drawbacks to that. And particularly in, you know, within the military health system where, People are going off on trainings and they have, you know, or they get deployed and they're moving around. Um, they're not, you know, it's not always easy to get a full dose or a full course of treatment completed in a once weekly format. So we wanted to see, and actually we did find that when you deliver the treatment um, every day in that sort of condensed or mass format, that it's, it is as effective as once weekly treatment. Um, so that was a really interesting study. Um, as I said, some of the work I'm doing now is more looking at how do we get this treatment out to people. So I'm wrapping up a study now that is evaluating an online version of prolonged exposure. Uh, we basically sort of translated the, the, the PE manual um, for delivery online. So they're sort of self-guided online sessions with an expert PTSD therapist support um, provided by phone. So the therapist is sort of monitoring progress on the back end and providing support, trying to facilitate, keep the, the, the patient engaged with the program. Um, and we're, you know, we're wrapping that study up um, right now, just enrolling for uh, another week. This is the date as this is recorded anyway. Um, but what we're hoping is that it'll be it'll be effective and people will find it helpful um, because online delivery of, of any mental health intervention really has so many advantages in terms of scalability. It's much more cost effective. Um, there's really a lot of people out there that might benefit from these advances in treatment technology that we've made over the past few decades, but they either don't have access to them because, um, as I'm sure you know from talking with Brooke, there's not a lot of providers that are trained in these um, evidence-based treatments that are that are out there delivering them to, to their patients. Um, 
And then there's also, you know, there's also barriers on the on the on the patient end where they might not be comfortable seeking uh, traditional behavioral health care. They might just find it, you know, the logistics of of doing so to be uh, too burdensome. So that's sort of the promise of 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 harnessing, you know, mobile mobile health or or e health technology to just try as a way to try to really um, increase the reach of um, of evidence based treatments. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You're you're preaching to a card carrying member of the choir, of course, um, because uh, you know I was uh, in a meeting a couple years ago and I was talking about this and about how we as as uh, clinicians as mental health professionals need to get the word out about what we do because we know what we do works, right? We know that it's effective. We see its effectiveness day in day out. Uh, and I was trying to encourage uh, some some people to talk about uh, mental health on social media. And uh, one of my colleagues turned to me and said, uh, nobody's going to be looking for veteran mental health on social media. Uh, and I said, have you seen Facebook? Because they sure are taking, I mean, a lot of veterans, a lot of people are talking about mental health, veteran mental health, PTSD, TBI, trauma, they're talking about this on social media, but they don't seem to be talking about it with the clinicians. Is that one of the gaps you think? I think so. And I think there's also just, there's, you know, as a field, we have really not done a very good job at all about disseminating this information. We kind of are, you know, just to kind of overstate things a little bit, but we're, we're in the, the, the towers of academia, we're doing the clinical trials, and then we publish the paper and, and, and hope that that, you know, trickles down and changes practice. But we know that it doesn't. Um, and that's why I think implementation science and implementation work is so important because we have to figure out how to, um, you know, how to actually get those treatments out there. And part of it is is educating educating the public because they're not. You're right. I've seen these. I've seen these Facebook groups and and you know the the conversations that people are having about PTSD and they're not talking about evidence based treatments they're talking about you know maybe they heard some news story about you know some whatever approach or some anecdotal thing that they found helpful which certainly has a place i mean not to dismiss that um that the, the value of that but there's really not um you know, I mean, there's no ads for prolonged exposure in a, in a magazine next to the ads for Zoloft or things like that. So, um, you know, we, we need to we need to better educate um, not only our you know the other people in the field and trained providers and allied uh, mental health providers, but also the the potential patients themselves, so that they are empowered with that knowledge and can make a more informed choice about what's most likely to be helpful for them. No, I I appreciate that. I I definitely recognize that in that a lot of times we talk to ourselves. Um, You know, we talk to other clinicians, we go to conferences, and we, we talk about um, of course, I know uh, Dr. Foa. I don't know her, but I know of her and the work that she's done. Um, but uh, but most of the veterans that I work with um, couldn't pick her out of a lineup. And and you know mm-hmm. the idea of of we we don't do a very good job, like you said. But at the same time, um, veterans are are much more likely, especially younger veterans, are much more likely to access mental health through electronic means. Uh, There was a study at the beginning of the year by the National Academies 
that showed that over 50% of post 9-11 veterans are more comfortable getting their mental health or getting information about mental health through digital media uh, and through online services. Um, are you seeing some of that in some of the work that you're doing? Well, um, I, I, I'm not sure if I could speak to that directly because the the, the WebPE study that we're wrapping up right now, we're, we're um, you know, we're, we're recruiting people that have deployed sometime after 9-11. So in a sense that, that to some degree kind of um, um, inflates the, the younger, uh, the enrollment from younger, um, younger veterans. Um, but I can, I can speak to the, the comfort level because I've talked to patients that have completed the program and more than, more than once I've heard people say that they actually felt quite comfortable doing the therapy online because there wasn't a human being sitting right in front of them, uh, you know, waiting for an answer and listening to them. Now, I'm sure I think, you know, it's also true that there are a lot of people who would would much prefer that. Um, but I think there are people who who, you know, felt more comfortable doing it. They felt they could be more open. Um, they weren't, you know, they weren't, didn't have to worry about being judged or what, the, what is the reaction of the person sitting across from them going to be if they disclose this or say that they, they could allow themselves to be a little bit more vulnerable in that, in that setting, which I thought was very, uh, very interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I have uh, some veterans and, and obviously as uh, service members, um, veterans want to, you know, we care about people, right? We, we serve. It's sort of a service-oriented uh, organization. Um, but they'll mm -hmm. say, well, I don't want to, you know, I can't deal with what's going on in my head. If I tell you, I don't know if you'll be able to deal with it. I don't want to hurt you with my trauma. That's one of the things that I often hear. Uh, not That's not right. you know, veterans with me, but is is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think that I think that that's true. That patients sometimes, you know, they want to protect and uh, to your point, I probably veterans in particular, they kind of want to protect their therapist from from you know the really hor horrible things that they've that they've experienced. Um, that's certainly something that you know as a um, as a provider we hear about a lot is, you know, the, 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 they're wrapping up treatment with the patient and then they disclose the real, the, the, the real most uh, difficult trauma, which is what you're supposed to be working on the whole time. But sometimes patients will, will kind of, uh, keep that in their back pocket and sort of see how things go with something a little bit more comfortable. And then once they feel, I guess either that, that there's sufficient trust there with a the therapist or that um, they've seen the benefit of working on, on a, a, another traumatic memory that then they disclose, you know, the really, um, the really upsetting one. No, I, I definitely see that. I've worked uh, primarily over the past four years have worked with justice-involved veterans, um, and, and they're in the veterans' court, so my course of treatment with them is a year and sometimes longer, depending on uh, their situation. But there's been plenty of times where it's been three, four, maybe five months into almost weekly or biweekly treatment, 
And then we get to, you know, sort of the root cause, right? And and so there is this desire to really kind of close hold this idea that I don't want to harm the therapist that also does the benefit of I really don't have to talk about what I don't want to talk about anyway. So it, it gives that that sort of a, a an excuse. Um, mm-hmm. And and being able to access that through uh, technology or through web based, uh, that seems like it might uh, might be moderated a little bit. So when um, when we were talking a little bit before this, you had said that uh, as we're trying to sign people up for your upcoming study and as it's coming to a close, uh, you said something interesting that a lot of times uh, it'll be middle of the night. Right. You'll mm-hmm. see veterans mm-hmm. will sign up for this uh, program in the middle of the night. Um, that's interesting to me, of course, when you said it, it resonated because, um, it really are those middle of the night, not sure what I'm doing. It's those, I mean, not, maybe not quite crisis moments, but those are the veterans that are actually looking to seek help. And most times the counselor office isn't open at four in the morning. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so we have um, we have sort of a multi-step process. We have people completing a screen and then they sign up, and that's what I'm that's what I'm seeing is a lot of sign-ups happening in the middle of the night. And then we have other steps where we actually have our coordinator reach out to people, talk to them on the phone, do informed consent, etc., go through uh, the setup process. And you know, not everybody that signs up ever actually answers the phone or returns a call or text or whatever to, to, and, 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 um, moves forward with actually enrolling in the, in the treatment study, which is also interesting because I, part of me wonders if, you know, to your point about how people might be feeling in the middle of the night, um, you know, maybe, maybe in the, in, in the day when it, you know, it comes down to actually talking to a person on the phone and actually committing to something, it's, you know, that's maybe when the ambivalence sort of comes up and people might hesitate. Yeah, no, I, I can see that, you know, of course, the uh, the shadows loom larger at night, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, to to have second thoughts. And, and this is a lot of the challenge I, I see as a clinician and even as a veteran, right, you know, trying to break through uh, not just the stigma, but some of the barriers that you had mentioned um, that we can have all the providers trained as much as we want. As you said, of course, we don't. Uh, but we can have all the providers lined up and ready to go. Um, but really, there's a huge gap between what we know the need is and the veterans that are actually accessing services. Right. Well, the, you know, another issue that's so, somewhat of a, of a challenge or barrier on the provider end, I was actually just speaking with Brooke Fina about this like an hour ago. Um, but, you know, we've both of both her and I have been involved in several provider training initiatives and, um, you know, looking at, you know, how do we how do we get providers to actually use these interventions that we know work pretty well? Um, and of course, the caveat I've not mentioned before is that they're not perfect. And a lot of people actually don't benefit from them. And there's a lot of work to do to to make them more effective and more efficient. But you know, they're, they're sort of our best bet at this point. And we're trying to figure out how to get providers to use them more. And, you know, when the, the sort of tried and tr- the, the, the approach that's been tried to date is, you know, train providers and that's it. <laughs> um, you know, it's referred to as the train and pray model. We, we, we teach them how to do the treatment and then we say, 
and there you go. And, you know, good luck with it. And we sort of assume that now they know how to do it and therefore they will. But the truth is they actually don't. And there's, there's data, you know, from both the DOD and VA side to, that, that's looked at this, that they've both done, um, you know, rollouts of these interventions. And, you know, you can, you can train providers, you can have them do a workshop but that doesn't always actually translate to um, a, a significant shift in their behavior. Um, so they don't necessarily actually use these treatments, even if they've been trained in them. So one of the uh, one of the training studies um, that um, I, I the training study that I did with um, Dr. Foa recently was looking at the role of post workshop. Uh, consultation or supervision with providers, um, with the hypothesis being that, you know, if you if you have that support from an expert after the workshop to kind of help you think through how do I really apply this new skill and knowledge to my, you know, existing patient caseload, um, that that is really critical in in, in changing behavior and, and increasing the utilization of the intervention. Um, and, you know, that's, that, that's, that's true. That is an important component, but even, even with that, and that's a very high resource intensive, um, sort of intervention to do workshops and have expert consultation, it's still the utilization of of EBTs and trained providers is still pretty low, um, so it's quite it's quite a puzzle. I can tell you about a couple things that I'm I'm thinking of that might potentially move us move move us in the right direction. Um, so one once uh, DoD contract that I have. Uh, uh, a co-PI with um, Dr. Craig Rosen, who's a colleague at the National Center here, we have um, a project uh, to try to increase the implementation of prolonged exposure in the military health system. And what we're doing is we are training providers, but we're kind of um, training providers as a, as a control. So, of course, you need to know how to do the treatment, um, but our 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 thinking is that training is, you know, necessary, but perhaps not sufficient to really um, increase the use of of an e, of an EBT like PE. And so, what we're doing um, after we've trained providers is we're going into the clinic where they work, and we're doing it's essentially like a, a quality improvement or process improvement intervention where we are assessing the barriers and facilitators to PE use in that clinic. Um, and then we have, um, I guess, like a portfolio of different um, approaches or intervention strategies that map on to whatever barriers um, were identified at that clinic. And then we sort of work with a, with a champion at the site to implement that, um, that plan. And then we're looking at, um, we're looking at the rate of PE use with PTSD patients. That's sort of our primary outcome. But the thinking is that, as I said, training the provider is, is necessary, but, but probably not sufficient if they're working in a clinic where, for example, um, they can't, uh, you know, their patient caseload is so large that they're not able to see patients, see patients once a week, 
or where they can't change their, you know, their, their scheduling template to see patients for 90 minutes, which is how PE is typically implemented or where they don't have, you know, strong leadership support or they don't have, you know, there's, there's, there's organizational or sort of more systems level barriers that can impact what providers are doing. And that can, and, and that's really what we're aiming to better understand and see if we can shift those things to make it easier for providers to use PE with patients, you know, for whom it's appropriate. No, I can see that. I appreciate you uh, listing some of those barriers. And that was going to be my question is what kind of things would would keep clinicians from from implementing this? Uh, And and you're absolutely right. You know, it's uh, it's almost saying, you know, I've I've got this. I've got this nice new life preserver, but uh, you you got me rowing in a, a boat that I'm trying to patch and just keep afloat. Um, and, and so it's mm-hmm. it, trying to figure out how to get because providers, mental health providers, truly do want to do their best work. That's why we're in this field is we want to help people, uh, and and we need to be able to believe in what we're using um, in order to. Because I can't sell what I don't buy myself, right? And so for providers to really be most effective with prolonged exposure and to give the veterans they're working with the best outcomes, they need to believe in it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the other piece is that, you know, sometimes providers, you know, we train providers in the content of the intervention, so that they could implement it, but we don't. I don't think we do a, a, as good a job as we need to in really training providers in how to um, identify patients that are candidates for the treatment, how to talk to their patients about what their assessment findings are and how that maps onto what the you know the treatment options are, um, and 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 so that the provider feels you know, comfortable saying, you know, like X, Y, and Z are the options. I'm trained in X. Here's what that would look like, um, you know, and, and kind of pitch it to them and be confident and sort of explain it to the patient because we know that, um, you know, it, well, it's just, it goes without saying that I think informing patients about their treatment options is, is important and empowering. Um, but we know that when patients are involved in their own treatment planning and, and have a say in what treatment they receive that they tend to do better. Um, so I think that's a bit of a missing piece too, because, you know, in the, in the training, um, study I described before looking at the role of consultation, we trained the the providers that were going to be getting consultation after the workshop, they had just done the PE workshop, you know, four day training, uh, you know, often with Edna Foa, you know, doing the training. Um, and they, they were then supposed to find training cases. And a lot of times they couldn't, they said all of a sudden they couldn't, they didn't have any patients that they could do PE with. And I, I think, I think it is in, at least in part, I think it's because they, they sometimes there are patient characteristics or, you know, reasons why they don't, necessarily think somebody might be a good candidate and so they're not maybe talking to their patients about these options um they might be ruling people out um that potentially would be interested or 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 good candidates um for these treatments i mean i think that's one thing i think there's other things going on as well but i think that i think that training providers and how to actually 
talk about evidence-based treatment options with their patients and to, for them to be really comfortable doing that, I think is, that's not something that we really focus on in any of the the, the training that's happening now because it's all it's all content of the intervention primarily. No, and I think that's uh, that is another critical piece. Uh, I, I can see either uh, not knowing what the appropriate candidate criteria is, and so none of my none of my clients fit this particular thing. You know, it'll only work. You know, you said it earlier. It doesn't work with everyone, and so I need to find the perfect candidate, and I never find the perfect candidate, and then it's months, yeah. and it just kind of goes away, or. I try it with the first client that comes along who may not be appropriate and it doesn't work very well. And I'm like, you know, it's, you know, they said that this was great, but it's not really working with this client. And, and right. I'm just going to go back to doing what I know. Sure. Sure. And that, I think that pull is very, very strong. And, um, yeah, it's an important point because, um, there, there's also, I know there's research looking not in PTSD, but in anxiety more generally that if you are as a provider, if you are, um, if you're a little bit nervous about exposure, which is totally normal. And I think uh, most providers are when they're first learning it. Um, if you're a little bit nervous about doing it, you know, I need to do this gradually. I need to make sure my patient's really, really ready for it. And you kind of implement it in a very sort of cautious way, um, treating the patient as sort of, you know, maybe kind of frat making, seeing, seeing them as sort of fragile, um, you know, that this not probably not that surprising, but your outcomes aren't very good <laughs> because patients can pick up on that and they can, they can feel the difference between, you know, okay, we're going to try this. Don't worry. We're going to go slow. If you feel upset, we'll do some breathing. Um, and okay, we're going to do this. You're going to do great. This is, this is going to be difficult, but it's safe and it works. And, you know, like that real confident sort of approach really makes a difference. Um, and it's hard to have that until you've had some success experiences, which I think you're right is probably why if somebody uses it and they don't have that, they, they're quite likely to revert to, to their prior approaches. You know, and that's, uh, as you were saying that I think back to, uh, any service member um, who goes into any platoon or squad or flight or anything else, and if your your first line leader comes up to you and they're hesitant and uh, I don't know, you know exactly where to come from, right? You you know that okay, I can get over on this person or whatever it is. We we always know the we follow the strong, confident, you know, uh, knowledgeable leaders, and we're less likely to. Um, to, to follow those leaders that are certain, you know, uncertain of themselves. I mean, we, in the army, we train that, you know, when, when you, when you say something, you know, say it with confidence and, and, and definitely do the study, you know, what you're talking about. But I think veterans especially would balk at somebody who, you know, you're the professional and you don't believe this. How do you expect me to believe it? So I right. think you're right. There is a little bit of, um, uh, responsibility on the provider, uh, and then it also, as you were saying that, it it, uh, it brought me in mind and um, a colleague of ours, a mutual colleague, Ted Bonar, who introduced us, by the way, um, he and I had a conversation back on episode 48, um, and, and we were actually talking about using 
uh, prolonged exposure for moral injury, which is a, a different topic that we could get into mm-hmm. or, or not. Um, but Ted, you know, he said um, there is nothing, absolutely zero, anything that could happen in this office that is worse than what the event was in the first place. That uh, yes. that you are safe here. You may not feel safe here, but you are absolutely safe here. Um, and that he yes. said that that's that's how he would, in turn, prep the battlefield, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that um, I think that one of the sort of criticisms of exposure therapy or PE specifically is that you know it can you know not all patients can quote unquote handle it. Um, or that, you know, that, that it, it's just too distressing for people. Um, but you know, that's what, what, what Ted is saying is similar to sort of what, how I always think of it, which is, um, you know, these are people that have PTSD by definition, they are already, you know, really distressed and, and suffering and haunted by, traumatic memories. And so, you know, in, in PE, we, we do ask people to approach, uh, the memory of, of traumatic events. Um, but it's not like they're not thinking about this all the time anyway. And what we're asking people to do, which is totally different from having, you know, a flashback or re-experiencing, you know, symptoms is we're doing it in a very controlled way, which can make all the difference, you know, I, w- w- one analogy a colleague of mine um, used to use is it's the difference between me saying here, um, Dwayne, I have this ball, get ready, I'm going to throw it to you, one, two, three, and me like all of a sudden coming into your office and like pegging you <laughs> with the ball. Right. Yeah. Like it makes a really big difference if it's planned and controlled. And that's what you're doing when you are, are doing um, you know, imaginal exposure in the context of PE is planned, it's controlled, and you're you're teaching the patient that they can think about these things and they can tolerate it um, and they can cope. And when they learn that, it gets a little bit easier next time and so on and so forth. And then, you know, of course, the goal is to be able to think about it without experiencing, you know, debilitating distress. It's never going to be a nice memory, but but that hopefully it'll be put in its place more in the past um, and not, you know, popping up all the time and not causing such intense distress. Right. I I think that's how uh, I explain it. Um, and, and to be honest, I am not trained in prolonged exposure specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, we do, uh, me and my clients, we do talk about these things. And so I've had some familiarity with the, the techniques, but I'm not trained specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but even that idea of, uh, the way I explain it is, uh, when we're in that moment, you're in a play, right? You are in the play, you are acting the part. You are feeling everything, you know, as you did there. The goal is to get you out into the audience where you're watching a play and you can remove some of that emotional component or all of the emotional component to what is that traumatic memory. It simply becomes a memory and is no longer a recurrent traumatic memory. That's what you're talking about? Yes, I like that. Uh, that, That states it quite well, I think. It's the difference between, you know, remembering it and reliving it. 
So, and, and I'm sure you have uh, in, in your research come up against us. A lot of veterans are resistant to, um, to go here, right? To, to go through imaginal exposure um, that uh, they say, I want to forget this. I don't, I don't want to remember it more, right? I don't want to, sure. I'm trying to avoid this. Um, yes. What, how do you, or how do you recommend that clinicians or even veterans who are listening kind of, kind of get over that hesitation, which is keeping them from engaging in the first place? Um, you know, this is, this is sort of the, 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 the approach I would take for, for any sort of anxiety related disorder where, we, we know that the, the uh, main uh, maintenance factor that's really keeping the symptoms alive is avoidance. Um, so if someone were to say, you know, why would I do this thing? It's like the opposite of what I want to be, to be doing. I'm trying to not think about it. I'm trying to stay away from those situations or what have you. Um, I would say, you know, how's that working out for you? Because my guess is that and I don't, I don't mean that to sound, you know, not empathic, but my guess is that if they, they have PTSD, it's not working out very well for them. Um, you know, kind of by definition, they are, they are having some impairments in their functioning. They're missing out on things. They're not, you know, they're not living as full of a a life as they could be if they weren't trying to constantly manage their PTSD and people do so put so much energy into <clears throat> that avoidance. It can take up people's, it can start to eat up their whole lives and they're missing out on stuff. And it just, it takes up so much energy. And, um, you know, I, it, it, it's so understandable. I don't mean to, to, um, you know, to, to, as I said, not be empathic. It's so understandable to to want to avoid. Of course, who on who wants to think about the most horrific thing that's ever happened to them? It's a totally natural response to move away from pain and to and from painful experiences. Um, but that that you know that's that doesn't that doesn't really work. In, in you know by definition, if you have PTSD, you've been trying to avoid and, 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 and unsuccessfully. Um, so, so that's kind of the approach I would say is, well, you know, how has that been working? How has avoidance been working for you? Um, and then usually people say, well, you know, I guess not, not very well because I, it's not like I've forgotten the memory. I mean, I've been trying to push it out of my mind try to keep myself busy. Um, you know, I drink myself to sleep every night, but it's not gone. It's, it's still right there. And so that's kind of the hook I, I try to, um, use is to help people realize that avoidance while totally natural and so tempting, um, it's really a short term solution. And while it can be very scary to think about, um, you know, dropping that avoidance and instead, starting to approach, um, memories and situations that, that are distressing and painful, um, that that's, that's really the best way to, to have, you know, calmness and peace long-term. That's, 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 a, that's the way we know, um, that people can really recover. 
And I actually think that the, the basic idea of, hey, I'm afraid of something, what should I do to get over my fear? Well, I should face it and I should practice facing it. I think that's actually a pretty intuitive idea once, um, you know, once you, th- once you really think about it, you know, I'm nervous about, I had a, you know, a bad experience. Um, I don't know. And I was afraid of the dark when I was little. Well, how did you get over it? Well, you know, you, you do exposure, um, that, that basic principle is very intuitive. So I think part of it too, is just helping people to see how it would apply to the the symptoms that they're experiencing in their PTSD. No, you're you're absolutely right, Carmen. Uh, you're talking to a guy who was um, uh, pathologically afraid of heights. Like in my family, like uh, it was almost legendary my fear of heights growing up. Uh, and of course, uh, to get over that or whatever it was, I had to jump out of airplanes thirty eight too many times. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I hear that a lot with, uh, with, especially in the airborne community, I was afraid of heights, but I jumped out of airplanes. And so it's facing that fear and it's stepping up to that. And, and I think that, that veterans typically are, are used to doing that. You know, they overcome their, um, whatever hesitation might've been there, even to join the military or go through basic training or even face combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it somehow seems like they lose that ability when it's nothing tangible they can do, but it's instead something they have to think about. And so it's internal and therefore, uh, therefore invisible. Yeah, I can see that. And I think too, you know, people, people think of therapy and not necessarily incorrectly, but they kind of think of it as, you know, maybe it's a little bit, you know, just, you know, talking about your past or your feelings or whatever, um, and, and maybe aren't aware that there are some therapies that are really quite structured and could kind of be viewed as like a training, like you're really, you're, 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 it's a training in a new skill and it's going to take repeated practice. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of like, um, like physical, physical therapy or, or, you know, rehabilitation where you have an injury and you need to, you need to, to, you know, it's, it's difficult and sometimes kind of painful to go through that recovery practice, um, uh, process rather, but you have to do it and you have homework and you do it repeatedly and, um, and it works. So, you know, maybe, 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 um, uh, kind of pitching it as sort of a, 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 as a training is sort of a good way to go for (laughs) veteran population. You know, and this, you bring up something that, uh, that I saw early on in my clinical work um, was that <clears throat> cognitive behavioral therapy works very well with veterans because there is steps to follow. You mean if I do A, B, C, D, and E, then I get F? Well, it, that's what veterans are used to. We're used to checklists. We're used to, you know, uh, learn by the numbers Um, Mm -hmm. and and the same thing with, with dialectical behavior therapy or even teaching mindfulness or, but, but you can say, these are the steps that you can do and, and they actually work. Uh, and and I think that's, um, that's very applicable to prolonged exposure. And even as you said before, being able to have the clinician explain, okay, these are the steps that we're going to go through. And this is the outcome. If you want to get there, we need to start here. Yeah. Right. And I mean, this, I think, circles back to what we we're talking about before with with, uh, you know, we've not done a good job about uh, educating the, the, the public about different um, 
treatment options. But I mean, I can imagine how um, unappealing it would be to think about uh, seeking treatment for PTSD if I thought that treatment would just involve, uh, you know, having a therapist kind of talk about whatever, kind of poke and prod, uh, about my about my you know the traumatic events I've experienced without it being you know like a there's a specific goal and there's specific uh, there's a structure and um, you know this has been a this has been researched a lot we know it works so I I think you know I think that patient education piece would also you know is really is really critical to this. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, that's really great, and of course, it's given me some ideas. You know, in the in the army, um, each uh, each occupational specialty and each grade level, we have a manual of common tasks, and at the SMCTs, so of course, they might have changed it since I've been out, but. There's, I mean, it's like step by step how to do all of your tasks, how to dig a foxhole, how to, you know, do a three to five second rush, how to do everything. And, and you can either be a go or a no go. And you're right. We haven't developed that for veterans to be able to say, this is what we know works. Uh, and, and this is how it can. So, so essentially you have a veteran that maybe this is uh, your, um, you know, dream scenario is a veteran comes into their therapist's office, say, Hey, Look at this. These are the steps we need to go to make me better. Can we do this? Right? <laughs> right. Right. Or even for them to know that, you know, there are treat there's I mean, I mean really the state of 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 a public I think understanding of of psychotherapy is is really poor and and it, and it's our fault. But I think that even just understanding that there are different kinds of therapy um, is really important and that some have been evaluated in, in research studies and found to be effective and many haven't that in itself, I think is not widely known. Um, and it's, it's critical because, um, you know, if, if somebody just, you know, just, I'm just going to look in, I mean, online, I guess I was going to say phone book, but that's outdated. If you're just going to just try to find a, a whoever, a, a mental health provider, you know, the chances that you're going to get evidence-based treatment are, are really low. And if you, um, you know, maybe you'll have a good experience anyway, but if you don't, and then you leave feeling like I tried this whole therapy thing and it was a bust. And so I'm never going to try that again. And I'm not going to suggest it to my friends or family who might benefit. So, you know, because, because there's not that understanding that it's not, it's not all the same. <laughs> no, you're, you're exactly right. That's actually uh, just something that, uh, that uh, Matt Wettenkamp from the Cohen Veterans Network, he and I were talking about last week, um, that his first experience, he was a Marine Corps scout sniper uh, before moving into the uh, veteran sports space. Um, but his first experience with uh, therapy was 12 years after he got out of the military. It wasn't good. And he avoided it for another year or two before he tried it again. And so we wait until we're at a crisis point to access therapy. It doesn't work very well. And then we have to wait until we're at another, perhaps stronger crisis point. Not that that's what, what Matt was, was at, but, but I think the mm -hmm. point illustrates itself that we, we need to be able to, to get it. You know, we're always talking about left of the boom, right? You know, and, and we need to get upstream and all these things um, to be able to get ahead of it before it gets to a crisis point. Right. 
<clears throat> you know, the other piece, um, too, is that if, you know, as we were saying, these, these treatments are not bulletproof. They're, you know, they're, they, they work with many people, but not all. And um, for those, you know, that don't benefit, I think it's incumbent upon providers to make sure that the patient understands that they are not, um, you know, they're not, they're not a lost case, um, which I think is sort of the default conclusion that a lot of patients would have. Um, but you know, there are other treatments and because this one didn't work with that therapist, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person can't recover quite a bit potentially from, um, an alternate intervention, um, because we do have, you know, we do have quite a number of, of treatments that have been shown to be effective at this point. No, that is an excellent point. And uh, I know that uh, when two of us start getting together and talking about something we're passionate about, we can talk about this all day. Uh, but to wrap it up, is there anything else that you think uh, maybe some final thoughts that you, you'd like to share with the audience? Um, I would just say that, you know, I, 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 it was really nice to talk to you. I think, um, yeah, I think there's some interesting things happening to try to help make the treatment more available among, um, or any evidence-based treatment among mental health providers, um, as well as some interesting, you know, potential ways to get treatment interventions to people using other modalities, online treatments. We didn't get a chance to really talk about mobile apps, but there's some interesting work happening in that area. Um, and I think that's a, a pretty promising way to, um, to reach a lot of people. Um, and that might be, you know, beneficial to, to, to many in sort of a step care model. So lots of, lots of work to, to be done. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have a chance to talk to you a little bit about it. No, I, I appreciate that. Yes, there is much more in the technology piece. We actually had uh, the Objective Zero app on the show uh, back in uh, episode 76, um, doing some peer support for suicide prevention. Uh, and, uh, and I think there is a wide open field in voice first technology with these mm -hmm. digital assistants like the Amazon Echo and the Google Plus and uh, or the, the Google Home and things like that. And so um, I am actually trying to explore some of that in my spare time, which I don't have much of. Mm -hmm. But it's but there's a lot of really great opportunities out there. So if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, maybe it's a clinician that wants to um, wants to learn more or get some more information, uh, or just a veteran that wants to hear more about uh, what you've got going on, what's a good way for someone in the audience to get in contact with you? Um, yeah, uh, welcome uh, to continue, uh, you know, conversation with people that are listening. Um, answer any questions that they have. Uh, probably email is the best way. And my my email is my my full name, so Carmen C A R M E N dot McLean M C L E A N, and then the number four, and at VA gov. That sounds good. And I'll make sure that uh, your contact information is in the show notes. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today. You're welcome. Thanks again so much for having me, Dwayne. This was fun. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network.
One of the things I appreciated about our conversation is how Carmen sees the same thing that many of us are talking about. Mental health professionals know what works when it comes to treatment, but veterans aren't getting the benefit because they don't know about it. I was at a Veterans Day event this past Sunday, and I was talking about mental health with a retired sergeant major. He was expressing frustration that doctors were wanting a friend of his to go through the minefield, and he didn't get it. He said, why bother going through it? Why enter into it if you don't have to? I explained to him that it would be great if you can go around the minefield, but way too many veterans find themselves stuck in the middle of a minefield and either stuck there or wander around aimlessly. Better, I told him, to find someone who can help mark a path through the minefield so that the veteran can get out the other side. That's what Dr. McLean is doing in her work and what we're trying to do here, to help veterans understand that there are people who are capable and experienced who can help navigate these treacherous waters, to mix metaphors, that there is treatment that is effective and the painful memories we have and problem behaviors we engage in can go away. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the show. Remember, you can see the show notes for this show and all of the shows at changeyourpov.com and veteranmentalhealth.com. Stay tuned next week when we talk to Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas, an academic researcher, author, and Marine Corps combat veteran about how to spread the word about veteran mental health. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. And until then, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV podcast network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at duane at veteranmentalhealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to veteranmentalhealth.com or changeyourpov.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV podcast network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out, because remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
they sin, gave every shred, every last thread of my identity, conquer my fragility, eliminate the enemy, deliver me, God, from temptation. Tell me that this life is just a matrix, need a facelift, back to basics, vision LASIKs, I only feel alive when I hear the bass kick. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up. You know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.